welcome back to a new series of the Bastionan podcast. As this is series three, we are exploring the rule of three, where each week I ask a new guest to tell me about the three tabletop games that are most important to them. Today, I'm joined by a writer and artist whose work spans topics from terrariums and music boxes to crafting witches and sea snake mermaids. Welcome to the show, medieval historian slash game designer, Philippa Mort. Hi, Philippa. Hello. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what I wanted to put in, one of, one of the games that you've written is about the, the bird people from D&D, whose name I've never had to say out loud. Yes, Aracocra, I believe is the pronunciation. <laughs> but again, I've also only read it, so who knows. It's one of those words that until I thought about putting it in this note, I've never thought about saying it out loud. And, um, and yeah, I decided to stick with mermaids and witches because I'm, I'm a bit more confident with that. <laughs> a bit more traditional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And without giving away any of your choices... Uh, what was your kind of process for choosing three games that are important to you? Hmm, okay, so no spoilers. Uh, there, I thought about one of the ones I've chosen is one of the first RPGs I ever played. So it's important to me because it was the foundation of me understanding like the basis of what I thought should be an RPG when I first started out. Now that might have changed a bit over the years, but yeah. that was why that one was important. Um, the other two... I find very interesting because they bring out something a bit different from the world's most popular <laughs> dragon game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, they kind of give a little bit of a different view, both for the um, game master and for the players. And that's something I've been uh, experimenting with and thinking more about as I've been sort of branching out into trying to make my own smaller games um, and thinking about future um, narratives and game design as well. So um, what is your first game that you've chosen? Well, let's start with the one I was saying introduced me to role-playing games, which is Call of Cthulhu. Um, More specifically, the first time I was introduced to Call of Cthulhu, I actually played a variant called The Laundry Files, which is based based on the novels by Charles Stross. Hmm. Um, But I have also played some of the other time periods, which is another reason why I picked this, because I like a game that can be set in a lot of different regions, locations, time periods, specifically specifically time periods, because as a historian, I enjoy that. Um, but I mostly picked it because, yeah, it was, I think, if not the very first RPG I ever played, it was maybe the second and the proper first campaign I ever played. And it really introduced me to, um, yeah, what I should expect from a, from a RPG and also what I should expect from the other players at the table, the game master. And, and that's kind of set a precedent for me when thinking about other games. And I think it's interesting that I started with that rather than D&D, which I think most people nowadays yeah, start with, yeah. um, because it did give me a different perspective. So then when I started to learn D&D, for example, I wasn't thinking, oh, I need to go into combat every time because mm. <laughs> in Call of Cthulhu, that's not necessarily a good idea. So Call of Cthulhu was the first one that you played kind of... Uh, as a, yeah, as a full campaign, yeah. Yeah. Um, so before that, had you had you had like a little taste of D&D or something before? So um, I was first introduced to the idea of TTRPGs by my dad, who had played um, 
advanced dungeons and dragons so he'd sort of shown me his old books and things but we'd never played anything yeah. and i think i'd played like i'd made a character for some sci-fi game that i don't remember but we never we it's we took the whole day making the character and then we never actually played <laughs> yeah, one of as you ones. do as you're a team like i don't know how this works i'm just gonna make myself yeah, yeah. um so yeah call of Cthulhu was the first time i i, I joined a gaming group and i actually learned how to play a game um, and then Brilliant. played it for a whole year that's a really interesting one because it's kind of interesting because quite a few people in across this series I'm recording these out of order so this might not yes. make sense if you're listening <laughs> to them in order but um quite a few people have chosen for their first pick their their first game and it's interesting that almost everybody seems to have a lot of people have chosen something D based frankly yeah. um and that's obviously like a, a very common first game but it's interesting that you got your start with something a little bit different and how that how that might have affected your sort of it's the preconceptions isn't it like you say about exactly yeah not thinking that this is a combat game and um having perhaps more of a history focus rather than like outright fantasy worlds yeah you say you joined a gaming group what was what was what were those first experiences sort of like for you well um I joined it actually as part of my um first year of university Mm. so um, I actually did an art foundation before I did my undergraduate degree, which is a one-year course. And so I was kind of going into the year thinking like, this is going to be difficult to make friends <laughs> because I'm only going to be here for one year and who wants to, you know, sort of make friends with someone to then have them disappear off yeah, into the yeah. big wide world to never talk to again. So I was like looking around the Freshers' Fair, looking for different societies. And I was like, oh, RPGs, I know what that is sort of vaguely <laughs> so I went along and um they basically had all of the people who were going to GM different games lined up and they would explain what their game was and if they had any space so I almost started with Vampire the Masquerade which could have been completely a different experience very different time different yeah. experience um <laughs> but uh I'd sort of been chatting to one of the guys who was already in the game and he was like oh, I think you'll like this one like this one seems more up your alley hmm. um so yeah the first couple of weeks was just kind of getting the idea of what a TTRPG was and I very much made myself uh <laughs> as a character which also I think is something you can do more in Call of Cthulhu which is quite nice yeah, definitely. So another reason I like it is you can play a very outrageous character totally different from yourself or you can have something that's a little bit more down to earth um and kind of draw on your own strengths which I quite like um, yeah, but it definitely. was very good as a beginner to just go okay I'm gonna make myself but with a slightly <laughs> different name <laughs> I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you, do you remember what your first character's name was? Oh, uh, it was Penny. And I know this because I was like, Philippa, another <laughs> P name will do. That is pretty close, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, actually, one of the nice bits was halfway through, we had the, the normal scheduling difficulties any group has. Um, so we made secondary characters so that we could have a sort of secondary plot. Mm. Uh, and then I got to play Ursula, the middle management hench lady, oh. which was a really great experience again, as a first-time player, because it forced me to try a different character. And again, I think that was something that made me go, oh, I don't have to play myself, which could have taken me a lot longer to realise. Yeah, yeah. Um, and encouraged me, I think, then, that's something I've tried to keep when making games, is making interesting characters for people to interact with. Um, oh, sure. Beyond just sort of no the normal people. <laughs> and I think that, that grounded nature is a strength of that kind of system, because it, you haven't got to go in and create someone that's like a character out of a an epic fantasy thing you, you don't have to think about well what's an elf and what's a dwarf and what are all these different regions you, you can yeah. sort of ease yourself in with that and then and then there's a there's a lot of steps you can take before you have to know really anything about 
the, mm. the world of Call of Cthulhu. I barely, yeah, I barely knew what Call of Cthulhu was. I understood it was cosmic eldritch horror, but I'd never read the Laundry Files before. I read them after playing. Mm. Um, I'd never read any Call of Cthulhu um, beforehand. Uh, so it was kind of going in completely blind to what it would actually be about. I feel like that could be the best way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, which I think to me suggests it's a very accessible game if you can go in yeah. without needing to know all of the lore and background. That's the thing. I think people th- people sometimes get hung up on the idea of you know because it's called a mythos, they think oh it's got this huge like canon behind it and you need to go and learn all of this. But um, my experience of, I've only really dabbled in sort of Cthulhu-based games. And my experience is the ones that I enjoyed were the ones when it was all very mysterious. Exactly. And yeah, you can, you can kind of, it, it's, it's got a good balance of the normal and the weird. And yes. I think if you focus too much on the weird, you, the, the normal side of it needs to be interesting as well. Yes. I was, so a little tangent, but I think a game that's kind of the opposite of this that you would want to think about carefully when you run it is... Um, Oh, is it Tales from the Loop or it? Ca- no, Tales not in Game from the Loop. That's a playthrough, but Tales from the Loop. Yeah. I was chatting to some friends who'd been running it, and they were saying they actually adjusted it so that it um, everything that was weird about it and all of the sort of different robotics and things that are going on were things that were present now, so that it wasn't obvious to the people playing what was different. Whereas if you play it as written. It, even though your character shouldn't know that anything weird is going on, you as the player do know. And as much as you try not to metagame, you will be aware when something is wrong. Whereas yeah, I think yeah. um, if you go into it with no knowledge, particularly with Call of Cthulhu, you don't know if you, you you know something's wrong, but you don't know what it's going to be, which I think can be quite fun. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I can't remember the name of the game and it's really embarrassing. It's either Cthulhu-esque or Lovecraft-esque. Is it Lovecraft-esque? I think that's the name of the game. I'm I'm sorry to, if if whoever designed that game is by any chance listening to the podcast, I do apologize. But I I think it's Um, Lovecraft-esque. There is a game that is sort of, the the key concept of it is that it's a TTRPG that sort of is inspired by um, Call of Cthulhu. But but the the whole mythos side is kind of like semi-randomized, I think. So that it's different each time you play it, and and the other one, weirdly enough, this is on my desk because I was looking at something uh, in it this week is um, Silent Silent Legions by um, Kevin Crawford. I am I've not I don't know it, but I have heard the name. Yeah, well, again, sorry, <laughs> it's, it's actually the um I think the i the the thing that I like about it is that it's rather than saying this is a game, this is a Call of Cthulhu game, and these are the gods that will be featuring, and these are the monsters that will be featuring. Yeah, it is. It sort of takes that and adds the random element so that you're creating your own version of that setting if that makes sense yes um and yeah that that always appealed to me uh, that idea but in, in terms of what you've taken from call of cthulhu for your own uh for your own designs is there anything because obviously i know you said your tastes have changed a great deal um since then but is there anything that you've clung on to since then that you think is still apparent in your work so i think the number one thing i've taken from it is the the fun of playing a mystery game in my opinion <laughs> ideally most games should be at, at some level a mystery uh you should be uncovering something like i don't really want to go in and know exactly what's going on all of mm. the time so just that sort of building of tension and discovering clues and things that's something i've tried to include in my own work cuz that's something i enjoy um and then as i said like thinking about characters that can fit into a setting easily but are a little bit different and interesting. Um, it's something I 
tried to sort of carry on when I'm playing games, but also then when I'm thinking about writing for other people. I think also it was interesting, something that I kind of then looked out for when looking at games in general is different systems because I wasn't going straight into okay D and nothing else it yeah. was oh oh I'm trying this system but there's all these other systems I could try I think in general that's kind of kept me quite open-minded into just looking for lots of different ways that things could be meshed together rather than saying okay it needs to stick with one system sure um, so I think that's something else I also kind of affects how I think about designing games and writing for games hmm. yeah the, I think the mystery factor is easy to overlook because I think, well, not so much now. It's a lot better. I sound like an old man. It's a lot better now than it was. <laughs> but um, what I'm trying to say is um, I think it, for a while, it felt very much like any conversation about role-playing games had to have a big conversation about combat. Yeah. And that that was like a big part of the conversation. And I I, I can see that. And I understand why that's often the case because it's, you know, it's very high stakes and you need to think carefully about how it works. But that mystery element is... When I think back on like memorable games that I've had, it's it is kind of like rocket fuel for your game. I think yeah. that there's lots of people that aren't interested in combat, but there's there's a much smaller percentage of people that aren't interested in a mystery. I think. I mean, you know, look, look yeah. at the prime time television listings for any day of the week, and um, some, something about uncovering a mystery appeals like on a very core level to people. Yeah. Well, it also makes me think of a totally different subject but I think the structure is similar which is musicals where you you talk and then when you can't talk anymore you sing and then when you can't sing anymore you dance I feel it's the same for games it's like you're investigating and you're talking and things combat for me should be that combination like you couldn't have done anything else apart from into combat rather than okay now it's time for the combat and we do this for 10 minutes and then we go back to doing our other things it's I, I would ideally in a an ideal game have combat as that last resort and you've tried other things first um, which I think is quite different from what you might expect from a more combat heavy game I mean to use the to use the sort of television mystery show angle again that that's often the way that like an episode will end that'll be like the climax is there's a punch-up or something like exactly, that yeah. um so having it as that kind of note is makes it much more impactful than if it's if there's a punch-up every 10 minutes in the show you yeah. start to it's hard to think about whether it's a slightly different sort of show that you're watching. And that's not obviously to say, caveat, like if you want to play a combat-heavy game or you're more oh, interested yeah. in a war game type RPG, like that's fine as well. This is just stuff that I like personally. <laughs> I think the musicals and the musical analogy is quite good because if if I if I was watching again, I'm going if I was watching like a crime mystery and and then there was a song in the middle, I would enjoy the weirdness of it if the cast did start singing. But yeah. it, it's, it's a very different effect to if you have gone out to see a musical and that's what you're going to see. Exactly. And I think I think it's about expectations. And the one thing that I think Call of Cthulhu mostly does better than things like D&D is it sets those expectations pretty clearly. I think I think it's it's pretty consistently been good at saying that combat isn't your bread and butter here. Yes. It's, it's mostly investigation. Yeah, it's the exception. Um, yeah. And I like that, yeah. And yeah, I, th- I think for new players, that's that's really valuable because the amount of people that I think walk up to a D&D session expecting one thing and then they get something different um, it's not really anybody's fault but I, I imagine that happens quite a lot yes that is your first pick uh, what 
game did you choose for your second choice? So my second choice um, is kind of related in the idea of like slightly less combat, thinking through more social things, thinking about beyond D&D, which is Monster of the Week, ah. uh, which if anyone isn't aware, it is based on the, uh, well, I believe it is based on the Apocalypse World system. It uses a similar idea of you have success mixed success failures rather than just a pass or fail which is something I really like about it um Mm. it also the bit that I think is really great and the reason I chose this is the um in the character creation you you make your characters at the same time and the idea is that you create a shared backstory and history and that's specifically written into the um character sheets is questions for your other the other players at the table to think about how did we come together? And the number reason, one reason I like this is like, it lets you just get on with it. Uh, you don't have to spend a whole session being like, why are we all here in this tavern or pub or yeah, yeah. in this mystery together? It's like, okay, we've got some backstory, let's go and let's figure out the rest of the stuff as we go along. Um, and so that's why the main reason I've chosen Monster of the Week as my second pick. Again, that's one of those design things that it feels like it was born out of somebody having too many unsatisfying games yeah, unsatisfying first sessions of other games. Right? It's like we need to have that. I like. I, I know that I've done that myself as well. Like I, I do it in a really heavy-handed way. It's like, right, this is what we're doing, and this is why your character needs to go here, um, and this is why you're all together. But I think it's it's kind of become the standard. I think you, you kind of need that now in your game, whereas it used to be something that was just left completely, completely for the GM to work out. Yeah, which I think. Um... That's not to say it can't be nice to have a game where you meet each other and get to know each other and things, but sometimes, particularly, I play a lot of one-shot games and I just want to be able to go. <laughs> I just want to, yeah. you know, start. Um, and it, it doesn't feel as heavy-handed for the players to decide on their backstory together than it does if the GM goes, right, you all know each other already, off you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's something I really like about um, Monster of the Week and also those games in general. It's one of those things that I think you'd, you'd always rather have it and not need it than yes. need it and not have it, I think. So it's it's if you want to do your whole, your characters all meet in session one, it's it's easier to ignore a rule, I think, than to create something out of thin air. It yes. is my personal opinion. I'm sure some people differ. Um, but what what is your, so when did you first come across Monster of the Week? Was this your first kind of um, exposure to the Apocalypse World PBTA style uh, of things? Yes. So I sort of had a, a staggered introduction. I first encountered it listening to the Adventure Zone podcast. I'm sure many other people have also encountered it mm. that way, where um, they started playing it as a system. And I was like, this sounds very interesting. I also called it the wrong name for about a year because <laughs> they were explaining it as Apocalypse World. So I was like, they're playing Apocalypse World. And then I was constantly being corrected. No, no, it's not. It's not that. Uh, it's it's like week. when your mum calls every console a, a PlayStation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but then after listening to that and going, that sounds interesting. Um, actually, my partner started a game of it, um, but we, we adapted it um to be critter of the week where we set it in the wild west instead ah, nice. and sort of adapted it a little bit um so i've also played some games of it as well um so yeah as i say it's sort of like i listen to it first i listen to other people play and then have had a go myself as well um so it's sort of over the past i guess three years i've been sort of slowly starting to look into it and then more recently gone oh this is actually a really good system <laughs> i should probably actually read it as well as just play it Awesome. So have you actually run the system or is that something you're thinking about uh, doing in the I am future? in the process of planning a game. I have actually not run it yet, but I have finished reading it finally. Um, partially spurred also by reading other 
Powered by the Apocalypse systems such as Monster Hearts and mm. um, uh, Brindlewood Bay? Brindleton. Brindlewood Bay. I get confused because there's a very similar name in The Sims for <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> the neighbourhoods. Um, but yeah, so looking at all those ones together, I was like, oh, this is a really interesting system and seems a nice step, particularly for, um, I have several groups of friends who we all play different games and several of them are all talking about moving beyond D&D for various different reasons. And this seems like a really nice system to sort of slowly move people more towards a collaborative style of game as opposed to a DM-led game. And it's kind of an interesting follow-on from Call of Cthulhu because there's some, there's some, some overlap, kind of common definitely. language there. Yeah, and the, the whole kind of investigation side of things. So it, does it scratch that same kind of itch for you? Yeah, definitely. Setting up the... Um, the monster and thinking about well cryptids in general i feel like there's a little bit of overlap between sort of eldritch entities and then on the smaller scale cryptids mm, kind yeah. of i feel have similar themes as well but uh, one bit i really like about it is um they've got that countdown i think it's called where you as the um game master you you plan what would happen if no one actually interfered yes yeah uh, and that's something i really really like and i think fits well into also designing mysteries or designing investigations because thinking through what's going to happen if nothing happens, I think is just as important as thinking of all the clues you need to give because oh, it lets you kind of work backwards. Yeah, it's, it's it's in the same sort of way as sometimes it's it's more important knowing how to narrate a failure than a success Yes, in, in some games. And um, yeah, even if, you, even if you have the world's most proactive players that you know aren't going to do nothing, it, it just lays that groundwork, I guess. Yeah. And it gives you that point of reference to work from. Also, also for me, I'm a bit of a, I don't know, a wimpy GM sometimes in that I, I don't want my players to do badly. Uh, and I feel really bad about like, if they fail, I'm like, oh, no, I feel really bad. I want to like let you succeed. So if I have something in place, like, no, if you fail, this thing is going to happen ahead of time. I find that really useful. So I can actually yeah. be like, no, strict, strict GM time. You are going to have consequences for your actions. Um, so that's something that I find quite useful as well. Yeah, it's that it's that line where it's if, if it feels like the GM killed you, it's bad. But if it feels like the werewolf killed you, then exactly. it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you know, you're on their side. You don't control this werewolf. You just it just you know, happened. You're just representing. Yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that's that, it's really cool hearing, seeing that kind of common thread coming through. Um, I guess the one of the things I hadn't really considered is when when you're running it, are you going to be creating your kind of own your own kind of setting for that, or would you be drawing on your sort of experience with Call of Cthulhu? I think I would probably. Well, it suggests in the book that you start out with using sort of real world settings, hmm. and I think actually where I plan to draw from mostly is real world myths and legends, in particular um, English and Celtic legends, partly oh, cool. because I've got a lot of background i i um for my day job i research medieval history uh one of the funner day jobs uh and um i look at a lot of ghost stories and um experiences what with what they see as like devils and things like that so there's loads of really interesting sort of little stories and things that come out that no one knows about unless you study that time period really um because they're not big stories yeah uh, but that's the sort of thing i'd be interested in sort of incorporating a lot more is um sort of yeah lesser heard and well-known Medieval ghost stories, basically. Oh, that's awesome. More so than uh, big eldritch horror from Cthulhu. That, that is like the perfect career for running games, I have to say. It, it is helpful sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think 
it's it's got that sweet spot where it's if it's if it's a real myth that people haven't heard of and it's something that you you know you have some expertise in yourself i think that is the sweet spot where it's going to feel it, it hopefully it should really like land with the players and feel real yes. and, and if they complain and say they don't like it you can just say well don't blame me blame yeah exactly blame these people <laughs> 2000 years awesome. ago yeah <laughs> um, so so in terms of um what you've sort of taken from this game for your like your current designs um i i would imagine um you've taken some different things than from call of cthulhu yes um so one of the main things i take from it is definitely that mixed success which you don't get in call of cthulhu you don't get in D, &D hmm. um of having you succeed but with a consequence i really really like that idea and i try and add that in particularly so I write a lot of D&D &D supplements at the moment um, and I feel like a lot of the time you get like, okay, if you pass, you just get it done. I like to add a little bit of like, well, if you do this well, then you get this thing. But if you do even better, you you maybe get a bit more information or something happens. Um, but I do like adding in those sorts of consequences that you can think of ahead of time of like, okay, well, if this goes wrong, what's going to happen? Um, which I think is encouraged by that mixed success uh, role from Monster of the Week. And um, the other thing that I think I take a lot from is I really like, oh, what's it called? The um, the agenda. So they have the keeper agenda and the, the hunter agenda, so the player yeah, agenda. Yeah. And that's just like some little um, sort of sentences that you, you sort of say at the start of the game or just in your session zero to say like, okay, so the keeper agenda is make the world seem real, play to see what happens, make the hunter's lives dangerous and scary. And I really like having it written down um, because I feel that gives you so much more direction and reminds you how to stay on track, um, yes. which I think if you don't have, if you haven't kind of decided it beforehand, it's easy to kind of get distracted or think, Oh, it is DM versus player when actually ideally it's not. Um, hmm. So I think that that's something interesting as well to have like that sort of mantra to take with you. And also when I'm designing, I think, okay, well, my, my agenda as the designer is like keep it interesting for the players and give them a lot of options and um, things like that. Yeah, and I think it's it's useful to have that because when I think about what makes an, a game book really useful to me when I'm running a game is I'm thinking about that moment when the conversation kind of drops for whatever reason and they look at you expectantly and you're yeah. sort of drawing a little bit of a blank. It's good to be able to look down on the page and just have something immediately exactly. give you a little idea. And um, and those little agendas, I, I really like them, actually. Um, yeah. I think they're, I, I kind of feel like you don't lose anything by putting it in your game. So I kind of feel like... Yeah, it, you can ignore it, but if you yeah. don't want to ignore it, it's really helpful as well. And if, if you have a completely different set of like GM agendas, if you do want to run something, you know, like some combat driven, super deadly game, if, if you still put that in the agenda, then at least you've got everyone on the same page. And yeah. again, going back to those expectations, it just... Yeah. And uh, and I think the player ones especially are are really cool. Um, yes, I like them as well. I I, I my, my my slight concern with them is what happens when you get a player that says, "Well, I don't agree with that." But in reality, how often is that going to happen? Mm. And also, I feel like that's why they're written down is before you even start. You should be discussing: yeah, yeah. Is this the game for us? That's true. Are you going to want to play it? And and that's another thing. Like when I wrote um tiny home terrarium i have like a very small section that just says like goals of the game so that you know you can decide straight away okay is what i want to play today rather than kind of getting halfway and going oh this wasn't what i expected it to be so yeah i think i think it's a really good idea to actually write it down rather than yes, yeah, sort of yeah. leave it nebulous 100 percent 
So, getting on to your final pick then. Final pick. I'm especially interested in your thoughts on this one. I've got some real potentially horrible questions just to warn you. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. That that sounds much more ominous than it is. What a (laughs) build-up. So, yeah, what, what, what is your third pick? So my third pick is Thousand Year Old Vampire, which is by Tim Hutchings. Um, And this is obviously quite different from the other two, primarily because it is a solo RPG. Mm. um, And the idea of the game is you play as this vampire um, and you are, you know, thousands of years old and you are going through the world and experiencing life as a vampire um, and the the main uh, mechanic of the game or the main part of the game is you are collecting memories but you only have so much space to remember stuff because you still have a human brain and so you can only have at the beginning of the game five memories which are comprised of three experiences so each experience is, is sort of a sentence long um, and then as time continues and you run out of space you have to get rid of old memories you can transfer some to a diary, but you might lose it. And then once that memory is gone, you have forgotten it. Um, and so you're going through the game and you're narrating your life into this sort of either a journal or you might just sort of remember it. Um, and eventually you become so old, you've forgotten everything. And I just, I love it as a game idea. And I really, the bit I love about it is how the concept of the narrative of the game of being this um, thousand year old creature fits so well with that mechanic of getting rid of the memories and how the mechanic forces you to think carefully about your character and justify those changes. Um, And that's why I have picked this as my third game. But yes, quite different from the other two in some respects. Mm, Yeah. But it's, it's the, like you say, that the, the thing that really stood out for me when I played it was that journal games are a bit of a, a thing at the moment that seems to yes. be like obviously with the last year not being able to meet up with groups probably helped but I, I believe this actually predates um last year I think this was yeah the, I think at the so. tail end of um tail end of 2019 I think um and it was the, the idea that it really leans into that journal format where yeah. you know you're literally like writing down memories and literally adding to a diary at certain points yeah I, I saw um Oh, what's that? Jay Dragon, who's been doing the field guide to memories, which is um, yeah. similar, sort of, you you journal it. They've been calling it a keepsake game because you collect all these different things to go with it. And oh. I wouldn't say a Thousand Year Old Vampire is the exact same as that, but the fact you can walk away with a physical journal at the end, I think, is really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, definitely. it adds this, oh, I can't think of the word, a physical feel. Yeah, like a tang- tangibility sort Ta- of Yeah, thing. exactly. A very tan- tangible feeling to the game, which you don't always get. Was this one of the first journal games that you came across, or were you already kind of familiar with this genre? Because I think this was this was one of the first for a lot of people. I think in this in yeah, this style same, of game. Same for me. This was one of the first I heard about. Um, I'd heard of the idea of solo games, but I'd mostly heard of it in the context of like um, solo D anD D or something. Yeah. So I I played um, Ashley Warren wrote a really nice short D anD D one about based on the myth of um, Saint George and the Dragon. Um, but then I was like, mm, I, I don't really feel like D&D is the best medium for this. I'm going to explore some other more sort of indie games or, you know, branch out a bit. Hmm. And then, yeah, I saw a thousand year old vampire. I was like, yes, this looks great. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I, I found it. Yeah. Sort of around the start of lockdown, actually, um, as I was looking yeah, for things I could do by myself. <laughs> um, although actually my partner and I also play a joint game where we do it together. Ah, cool. Um, cause he's also interested in history. Uh, hmm. so 
we take it in turns to write it and then um, we'll do different separate entries. Ah, so like the thousand-year-old vampire with two brains. Yeah, exactly. But also just to do something (laughs) together. And then we're also, once we've finished the one we're on at the moment, we want to actually write letters to each other as two vampires, which is something that's suggested Ah, you can do in the game. Nice. Um, It does say you can, yeah, you can both be playing and then you do three or four prompts at a time and you write it up in a letter and send it to the other person. That's cool, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, we think that sounds fun. And I think you are, again, expertly qualified for this game because my experience of playing it was yes. <laughs> I I got it. And then um, and just for, for full disclosure, I think this game's really cool and I think everyone should definitely check it out. But my, my first experience was a little bit of a false start because you, you kind of um, you kind of open the book and you get started and then it kind of tells you to like pick a point in history where you yes. where your where your vampire begins. Um, and I, I have like an interest in history, but I'm not an. I'm not especially knowledgeable in any one particular area of history. So I was like, I, I don't really know like when, <laughs> when to go. And um, it, it started to stress me out slightly thinking like, well, if I don't know, if I pick 1750 and then I, I get it wrong, mm-hmm. am I kind of doing it wrong? Um, but I would imagine yours was, uh, you know, perfect to the day, I would imagine. Well, you say that. <laughs> However, what I would say is the more history you know, you know, the more worried you are about those details because you know you That's could true. get it wrong. So, <laughs> although, yeah, the bit that is fun is going like, okay, so we know in about 20 years' time there's going to be the Crusades. So let's try and find our way to Constantinople. That'll be yeah, fun. Yeah. Or like, okay, Crusades are over. What's happening next? Oh, you know, the Knights of Templar are setting up in Croatia. Let's go over there. So um, it is, yeah, I think it's a fun game if you enjoy history because you can sort of be like, okay, I'm going to make my way over to somewhere that something interesting is going to happen. But I would say you don't need to because also one of the things it encourages is just doing a big Wikipedia deep dive and yeah, yeah, finding yeah. loads of new stuff. Or, you know, if you don't know about a certain period, you can lock yourself in a cave for a couple of hundred years <laughs> and re-emerge um, in a time we really do know. So, like, it's not so bad. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I don't know anything about this. I'm just going to go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think the, the other, the sort of, the other option, which is perhaps what I should have done, but I wouldn't have shared this with people, is just to embrace an ignorant approach, I guess. Yes. And I, I'm sorry, that's probably painful for you to hear as a historian. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but like saying, like, look, I'm, I'm not going to get it right. And I, I might not know the 14th century from the 13th century in detail, but I can. it's about exploring the character. And exactly. if, I, if yeah. I get the name of a country wrong in that particular era or this, this place didn't exist yet, it's, it's kind of secondary to the story, isn't it? Yeah, the the nice bit about having the history side is that it gives you something to fall back on. But I don't, yeah, I think you're right. It's not necessary. You could totally play this in a totally fantasy setting and yeah, it would yeah. be fine. It would just take a lot more brain power to decide on it all. Um, I, I've recently been playing another solo game, Artifact, um, and that's one oh. where you, you like create a... You create an ancient artifact and you you are journaling it from the perspective of the artifact. So, mm. for example, a magic spell or something. Um, and with that, there's a lot more thinking of like, okay, I need to make up a whole village right now and I need to think of all these characters and things. So it is still fun, but it's a lot more like, okay, I need to be in the right headspace for all of the creation. Yeah, Whereas yeah. with with Thousand Year Old Vampire, because you kind of you can rely on a little bit of Wikipedia and other things, you can then take a step back from also world building while you're thinking of your character so it's quite nice that it separates that a little bit and it does give you that kind of deliberate tunnel vision as well because you're so limited in what you can remember yes you're probably not going to be um if you're jet setting around it's it's a big deal 
Yeah. You're, you're probably not going to need to imagine the whole of what Constantinople looked like in, you know, 987 no, exactly. or something. So yeah, it's I, 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 I've been meaning to go back and give it another try. I think I, I've been inspired to do that. And I will either go into Wikipedia and uh, and brush up a little bit on perhaps uh, a, a few choice eras or I will just embrace the the idiot approach which is probably yeah like. which is also absolutely fine <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I've got like official I feel that tone came across as like no it's not fine but no it is you don't need to I don't mind being patronized with my history knowledge yeah it's fine it, it wasn't wasn't my um I, I, I did a GCSE many years ago <laughs> we didn't really cover vampires too much though no. <laughs> so this this game must have I mean I'm sorry I'm, I'm answering the question for you but I, I would imagine this game has perhaps influenced some of your designs that I've seen around yes so the the, uh, the concept of doing a solo game uh which I then made for Tiny Home Terrarium is definitely influenced by it although it is vastly different in tone <laughs> uh <laughs> about as different as it could be but the idea of having like some questions to answer and letting the person who's playing it justify it a lot more themselves rather than having set outcomes was a really big part that I I really liked about this game um I felt it encouraged a lot more sort of reflection and spending time by yourself and thinking deeply about a character which sometimes you don't get you don't have time to mm, yeah. be sort of self-indulgent in a, a yeah, group exactly. game because you're playing collaboratively, which is also really fun, but a different experience. Um, so yeah, that that side of it, of the justification of your own character and, and yeah, thinking about it like that is something I found really interesting and something I've explored in Tiny Home Terrarium and I want to explore more in other games as well. I mean, you could do Tiny Home Sarcophagus and kind of cash oh, yeah, on the sure. vampire. Thing. You could be a tiny vampire, it would be great. <laughs> but I, I I do agree with you. And I think self-indulgent always sounds bad, but I think there's a time for being self-indulgent in a good way. Yes. And um, I, I actually did my first, outside of like a couple of experiments with like journal games, I did my first like attempt as a solo RPG session this week, actually. And it was it was really interesting because you're right that it, it does allow you to indulge in entirely what do you want to do <laughs> rather than thinking yeah. about the rest of the table and you know you, you, you try to maintain like some integrity to the narrative and all that sort of stuff but but it is it does give you like that kind of freedom I guess it's like mm. I guess it's like the difference between spending a day with a group of friends like visiting a city or going there by yourself like they're, they're very yes. different experiences and neither one is better or worse than the other Absolutely. Also, um, one bit I like about it, it has a safety tool at the back. Um, I think it's called like the flower or the petals. And mm. it's like, because you're playing by yourself, that doesn't necessarily mean you might not come against something that you find uncomfortable or difficult. Mm -hmm. And so it has this flower that you can look at the different words on it and you put yourself on it. So if you're on a green petal, it means you're doing fine. If you're on a yellow one, like maybe you're a little bit anxious or worried about something, but it's is manageable and then red would be like no put the book down not not enjoying it um, yeah yeah and i think tim hutchins explains like well you might want to be in yellow occasionally for this particular story because it's dealing with quite difficult themes of loss and grief and losing your memory and things like that um and i really like that in a solo game you can push yourself a little bit more than you would be able to in a a group game if 
you, you could push yourself in a group game, but you've got to then also obviously be mindful of everyone else. Whereas when you're playing by yourself, um, not only can you be self-indulgent and take that time to yourself, but you can explore themes that you would maybe find difficult but you can do it in like that safe space of like by yourself you've got the time set aside to think it through fully um yeah and that's another part of solo journaling in general that I think is really interesting although then (laughs) that's not necessarily happening in the game I've made for now but something (laughs) I'd be interested in thinking about in the future yeah yeah. and then again it's that kind of analogy of things that you would like to do with your friends with that if you were thinking about like a film there might be certain types of film that you want to watch with a group yes and certain types where you're like this is going to be for me me for set to settle in and watch uh, and, and sort of different experience so looking back over the three games that you've chosen um i always try and look for like a sort of common thread mm. And weirdly, the one thing that jumps out at me now that I hadn't really considered is that you could argue that they are all kind of horror-themed games. Yes, which is a little weird because I don't tend to put horror in my own. Yeah, work. they're kind of some of them are like off horror, but but horror is definitely in there as one of the ingredients. Yes, and yeah, would you, would you would you say that is your typical kind of? Because again, I'm, I'm I've been looking over your your games and. Uh, it doesn't strike me as a as no <laughs> a big theme in the stuff that you write. In fact, I actually find it quite hard to do properly scary. Um, I regularly show things to my partner and go, what do you think of this? And he's like, cute, so cute. And I'm like, no, no, it's scary. And he's like, no, <laughs> it's really cute. <laughs> like, but um, I think something doesn't need to be scary to have similar questions as a horror game. So mm. you can like horror asks a lot of and and mystery and thrillers ask a lot of questions about like human nature and what do we find scary and why do we find that scary and things like that and um I don't think like that has to be the only way you can explore sort of like those kind of deep questions like there's other ways you can explore that um so for example um one game that I've got coming out quite soon uh, is a stretch a stretch goal for um, a Traveler's Guide to the Candy Realms, which is a and d setting where everyone's made of candy. So it's obviously mm. like on the surface, very cute. Um, but my part of it is about, it's sort of based off Frankenstein and the Hunchback <laughs> of Notre Dame kind of story. Okay, cool. And you're thinking about, well, is the monster actually the bad guy and things like that. So um, I feel like you can still explore a lot of those questions, even if you're not using a horror theme. Um, but a lot of them are, more carefully crafted when you are thinking of that in mind. So maybe that's why that theme comes out a lot is that those are the questions I'm interested in playing with, but then I cutify them <laughs> yeah, by yeah. accident. It's, it's like the difference between, I think, when you look at like horror films, there's some films that you kind of watch as a bit of a roller coaster and you know you're going to get scared and then you're, you're probably not going to think about it much afterwards yeah. outside of not wanting to have the lights off that night. Yeah. Um, but then there are, the, there are the ones that kind of stick with you and they really kind of, for better or worse, kind of stick with you and like leave something lingering there. Yeah. And I think it's a really powerful tool to, to put those questions in there. I was going to also say, I think another theme that comes out from the three um, is um, play style and also character style and sort of justifying actions because Mm. um as i was saying with call of cthulhu it allows you to create a character close to yourself all quite different monster of the week has this um 
sort of the history section in the character creation that is specifically designed to encourage collaborative play. And then Thousand Year Old Vampire has a whole mechanic based around furthering and changing your character. And I think that for me is something I find very interesting and maybe does link to the sort of the questions from horror, which is um, when I'm playing or when I'm, you know, facilitating a game or designing, I don't want necessarily for everyone to remain as a static character. I'd like to encourage change and thinking about what your character would do um, and, and what might force them to change. Uh, so um, I think that maybe also another thing that kind of comes out from my choices is, yeah, character design, but particularly how you play your character um, and how you might change that over time. Yeah, and they're all games that feature a kind of groundedness to the characters almost yeah. i guess because i mean yeah. for call of cthulhu and monster of the week you're, you're you're generally kind of relatively ordinary people but yeah. even for thousand year old vampire you've got that historical grounding where yeah. you at least have the pretense of being a, a historical figure rather than you know something from like a, a really high sci-fi um setting where you've got yeah. you know you might be some alien that doesn't think like a human or anything like that and yeah that that really does seem to put more of the focus on like what your character does rather than who they are yeah because i think you find out who they are by what they do oh yeah exactly most yeah. of the time <laughs> another reason to get them to just get on with it rather than <laughs> yeah, yeah. about why you're here in the first place <laughs> so as well as your three games were there any like honorable mentions that nearly made it onto the list um yeah so i think i mentioned it briefly when we were talking about of the week but i've just been reading monster hearts um, I didn't pick it mostly because I haven't had a chance to play it yet, um, so I didn't feel I could talk too deeply about it. But I think that's another Powered by the Apocalypse game that really explores character in an interesting way. And then similar to Vasm Year of Vampire, it has a lot of mechanics that encourage um, thinking carefully about your character choice and justifying it. So the string system for sort of social capital, I think, is such an interesting idea. Um, so I almost included that, but uh, I have not. I don't think I could talk for ages about it. So, <laughs> but it certainly it's making me think about things I could do in the future. Yeah, I mean, are you? It seems like um, a rite of passage for anybody that does game design to, to do a PBTA, Power by the Apocalypse <laughs> game. Um, are you are you leaning that way at well, all? Well, I, I do have an idea, but it's such a baby kernel of an idea that I don't know if I'll ever do it. But um, yeah, the, uh, I'm interested in sort of, yeah, trying it out as a system because it does seem such a easily adaptable system and there's so many different ways you could use it, which is yes. really nice. Yeah, I think I think it's a really good, um, it, it is just a really solid foundation for, for, for I, it, it gives you a good way to kind of try out an idea that you might not want to pour hundreds of hours into like yeah, making exactly. a bespoke thing it's, i think I've, i see a lot of games that kind of start as a pbta game and then they kind of drift and drift until they're either yes. very different or, and, and you know and i think that's it's that that starting point is often the hardest thing it's like the whole blank page problem when you're trying to write um so i think starting with that structure is is a really powerful tool um i, I largely do that by just stealing someone else's game and then changing it until <laughs> you can't quite see what's there but also like how many iterations of things are there really <laughs> surely yeah, it's similar to definitely. you know there's only 15 plots in the whole world or something like that <laughs> surely there's only so many ways you can roll the dice that's it and it, it puts more of a focus on it, it means you don't have to worry about 
how you pass or fail so much whereas you're thinking more about what are the typical characters in this game like and what are the how are the agendas going to be different for this game compared to the the kind of core um which i think are the right things to be thinking about really it's 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 more the stuff that's going to come up at the table rather than the things that people sometimes get focused on when they're you know working out the maths of a of a mechanic or things like that yes and also while i do have the advantage of sort of English and history training I don't have the advantage of a maths training so using someone else's mechanics as a basis or you know using their um their open game license to kind of adapt to the things is very useful because I yeah I definitely need that starting point to kind of jump off from at least for now um, before I kind of become more confident in trying other things sure sure but yeah I, I don't have masses of spreadsheets of percentages and things like that I know some people do it that way instead but it doesn't suit me sometimes i think you're better off without them i think it's it's a rabbit hole that um i, I try not to look into yeah <laughs> i've looked and i didn't like it and i no. left again <laughs> so thank you for sharing your uh, choices with us um if people want to find out more about your games um where can they go yes so um number one place is on twitter uh at mort philippa philippa spelled p-h-i-l-i-p-p-a so one l two p's um, you can also see um, my my little games, Tiny Home Terrarium, on Itch.io. So that's philippa-mort.itch.io. On Twitter, there's also the link to DMs Guild, Drive Through RPG. Um, that's where everything is hosted at the moment. The easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Mort Philippa. So thank you again to Philippa for joining me today, and um, thank you for listening. Uh, as always you can keep up to date with everything bastionland at bastionland.com where there are links to the discord server twitch and youtube channels and to patreon where you can help to support uh, this podcast and you can join me next week where i'll be welcoming another guest to distill their gaming history into the rule of three goodbye for now